as you are making your way to Philippians chapter 3, um, we are going to be talking about pursuing perfection. Pursuing perfection this morning. Now, it's not just for the A-type personalities. This is for all of us. Because if we're honest with ourselves, we all desire a perfect world, right? We, we'd love a world that's COVID-free. We'd love a world with no more travel restrictions and no more uh, increasing prices and corruptions and, and, and wars and all sorts of things like that. I mean, even our sport uh, is kind of geared towards perfection. I mean, take the Olympics, for example. The last recorded perfect 10 in gymnastics was way back in 1976 by 14-year-old Nadia Hey, wow. I, how did you know? I don't know how to know, say it. Well, there we go. Commence. Uh, um, and, and gymnasts since then have been uh, you know, striving to attain the same thing. But now, now granted, you know, none of us are really going to make the Olympics, maybe one or two of you. Um, but uh, let, let's bring it closer to home. In fact, we, we desire a perfect home, right? Sometimes we, we want the perfect home. We want the perfect you know, hairstyle, we want the perfect style, you know, we, we, we want the, the perfect career with the perfect salary, with the perfect amount of affirmation from our boss, with the perfect amount of paid leave and, and promotions and, and you, you name it. You know, we desire to have the perfect body. And so we pursue all of the, the latest diet trends, you know, do I go keto, do I go plant-based, do I go carnivore, uh, you know, smiling at some of you, uh, you know, what type of workout program do I use, you know, uh, what should I use to, to achieve this perfect picture that I have of myself that I want to pursue. You know, we want the perfect husband, we want the perfect wife. I know my wife is, is very lucky. There was, I was just kidding. So I'm going to be on the couch later. Um, but some, in fact, sometimes we forget to ask, you know, if we are the perfect person for them or for our friends or for our colleagues. And so on and so on we can go. But the, the point is that we, we all desire in one form or another perfectionism. The problem with pursuing perfectionism in an imperfect world is that we discover that nothing really is perfect. In fact, you know, meaning we, we might arrive at what we think is perfect, but then when we get there, we're, we're disappointed by the anticlimax. And then we have to pursue something else. Or we realize that what we're striving to attain is, is actually unachievable, and so we simply give up or we burn ourselves out trying to achieve it. And with that comes all sorts of psychological consequences. But this is just how our world is wired. This is how we are wired. We, we're pursuing perfectionism. But have we ever asked the question, well, what about pursuing spiritual perfectionism? What about pursuing spiritual perfectionism? Is it possible to be the perfect Christian in this world? Can we become exactly perfect like Jesus in our lives? Some of us might say, yeah, yeah, I'm pretty close. Or some of us might say, I am like the worst Christian in the world. Do not look at me. And so what do we do? Here's what we're going to do. We're going to read the next section of Philippians chapter 3 and see what the Apostle Paul proposes for us in terms of pursuing spiritual perfection. Look at verse 12 with me. He says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. There's our word. But look at this. But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. He says, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do. 
forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. So here's what I think Paul is saying to us, what he's proposing. As Christians, we are to pursue spiritual perfection as evidence of our faith in Jesus. It's so important that we understand that statement because it can be very easily misunderstood. Pursuing spiritual perfection is a sign or evidence that you have come to faith in Jesus. Like an apple tree bears the fruit of apples, so the born-again Christian begins to pursue spiritual perfection. And by spiritual perfection, I mean becoming more and more like Jesus, who is the epitome of perfection. But this is what is so important. It is pursued. Our spiritual perfection is pursued from a place of acceptance before God based on what Jesus accomplished on the cross for us. We do not pursue spiritual perfection so as to be accepted before God. You understand that? That's huge. That's what religion's going to tell you. No, no, in order for you to be accepted before God, you have to pursue spiritual perfection. You have to become more and more perfect so as to appease Him. Let me illustrate what the gospel tells us. The Christian life, uh, which comes about by faith in Jesus alone, can be divided into three sections. And those three sections are comprised of a once-off event, followed by a process, and followed by another event at the end. Now, don't switch off. I'm going to use these pretty big words, but I'm, um, I'm going to throw them at you. But we, we need to discern, we need to understand them so that you can discern where you are at in terms of your spiritual journey towards perfection. And what I'm going to do is show, this, uh, show you these three words, and they're going to be kind of be the, the framework of, our, of where we're going this morning. So as you place your faith in Jesus, it results in a once-off event or a once-off declaration over you. I'm going to ask my assistant, John Ray, to help me uh, bring up uh, what we call justification. Thanks, buddy. Right, there we go. So that's justification. This is, as you place your faith in Jesus, this is declared over you. You are justified. All of your sin, was past, present, and future, was placed on Jesus at the cross, and we receive His righteousness. All of His righteousness is attributed to us. This is known as the great exchange. Jesus gets all of our sin, and we get all of His righteousness. So that when God the Father looks at us, He declares us, justified. He declares us righteous because he sees Jesus has paid the penalty for all of your sin. Another simple way of saying it is just as if we had never sinned. And we're also declared in this moment upon our faith in Jesus, we're also declared that we are children of God. We're adopted into his family. We're adopted into his kingdom for all eternity. There are more glorious things pronounced over us, but that's the basic premise of this first event, our justification. And then from justification, we flow instantaneously into sanctification. Thanks, bro. And, and this is the process of growing in spiritual maturity. 
or becoming more and more like Jesus, or like we're saying, becoming more and more perfect like Him. So if justification is our position before God, then sanctification is our condition in this life. So think of it like this. Let's say you've been working at Foster's for the last couple of years, and you finally get promoted to manager. So that is the position that is declared over you. You are now a manager. And if you're an expat, then the fun begins, right? You have to go get a whole new work permit and all that kind of jazz. But most importantly, what you have to do now is grow in your understanding of what the manager's role is. You have to let go of, say you were a cashier, you have to let go of your cashier mindset and now begin to grow in what it means to take up the role of manager at Foster's. And so in the same way, your justification declares that you are righteous in Jesus, but now our sanctification means that we now have to grow in that righteousness that has been imputed to us. Meaning saying no to sin and saying yes to Jesus and his ways. Now, the most amazing thing about this process of sanctification is that we're not left to do it in our own strength. Jesus doesn't just simply you know, justify us, which he does all on his own. We don't contribute towards that at all. He, he does that for us. And then he doesn't say, okay, now all the best in, in trying to become perfect like me in your own strength and ability. Upon our faith in Jesus, not only are we declared justified, but we receive God, the Holy Spirit himself, who makes his home in us, and he empowers us to pursue spiritual perfection, to pursue being more and more like Jesus. And then from sanctification, we'll eventually flow into the last event, glorification. Glorification. This literally is an event. This, is, this refers to the return of Jesus at the end of the age. And after judgment, he will usher in the new heavens and the new earth. And the book of Revelation tells us that God will be with us and we will be with God. We will be in his presence for all eternity. And we will get new glorious bodies. And when we're in these new glorious bodies, we will be fully, fully sanctified. We will be fully like Jesus. It won't just be a position that has been declared over us, but it will be our actual condition. And now the rest of our time together, we're going to be dealing now mainly with this middle section, this process of sanctification, and looking at our responsibility in growing and pursuing spiritual perfection or, or Christ-likeness. And so here are the three principles that we're going to look at this morning. We'll put them on screen. To pursue spiritual perfectionism, we need to have a holy discontent about where we're at, uh, a holy ambition, and then lastly, a holy attitude. So number one, we need a holy discontent, and a holy discontent means to have a, a holy or a, a good dissatisfaction about where we actually are in our spiritual journey. And I'm talking about a healthy appetite to grow in your walk with Jesus as opposed to sin or just kind of like a general apathy about your, your spiritual walk. So in other words, do we have this discontentment? Do we want to know Jesus more and more? Do we want more for our spirituality than we currently have? This is the start to pursuing spiritual perfection. Have a look at how Paul says it in verse 12. He says, not that I have already obtained this. What does he mean by this? 
He's referring to what we saw two weeks ago in verses 10 and 11, the things that we gain when Jesus becomes the all-surpassing worth and value in our lives. Remember, he, uh, he spoke about, um, he spoke about the, the power of his resurrection, this, this power that, the same power that raised Jesus from the grave is the same power that now works within us by, in and by the Holy Spirit that helps us change. And he says, and we'll eventually attain the resurrection of the dead, referring to our glorification. And so obviously he's saying, listen, I haven't attained that because I'm still alive and I'm writing this letter, even though Timothy's dictating, I mean, writing it down for me, I'm still alive. But then he goes on to say, or am already perfect. That word perfect was a, a common Greek word that referred to something that was fully grown up. It was used to refer to trees, mature trees that could now bear fruit. It was actually used of those, you know, those lampstands where they have so many arms and you can you know, put so many candles in it. It was used to refer to a lampstand that was now full of candles. It was complete and emitting full light. And so when you apply to us as Christians, it means to be fully and spiritually mature or completely like Jesus in terms of our character, in terms of our morals, in terms of our values, in terms of our lifestyle. And Paul is saying, I haven't fully attained that yet. He says, there is still room for improvement in me. Oh, come on, Paul. But Paul, you're justified. By faith in Jesus, you've been declared just. You have the, the imputed righteousness of, of Jesus. You're, you're, you're a child of God. You're perfect. And he's saying, no, 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 no. Don't confuse my, my, the declaration over me. Don't, don't confuse my position with my condition. And the reason why Paul was saying this was, as many scholars believe, is that uh, false teachers had infiltrated the church in Philippi, and they were teaching that you could become fully mature or fully perfect by a system of religious self-effort works. Remember, he kind of got quite harsh with them, and he referred to them as dogs uh, in verse 2 of chapter 3, who, who mutilate the flesh, he said referring to circumcision and the observance of the old covenant law and, and other Jew Jewish traditions, they were saying you could reach a level of spiritual perfection and justification before God in your own strength. Unfortunately, this, is, this wasn't isolated just to the first century. This, this uh, false doctrine of perfectionism has kind of plagued the church throughout the centuries. And essentially, it says that as Christians, we can completely defeat sin in our lives and live right now just like Jesus, perfectly. And so they have a misunderstanding between justification and the process of sanctification. In fact, they only look at justification and they say, look, on the cross, Jesus paid the penalty for all of your sins. And he broke the power of sin over your life. So you can, you can overcome sin in your life. You can live perfectly like Jesus. Now, it is true that on the cross, Jesus did pay the penalty for all of our sins. It is true that Jesus did break the domineering power of sin over our lives. But what this false doctrine fails to recognize is that until we receive our new glorious bodies, we will always have the presence of sin within us. We'll always have this battle until we have these new glorious bodies of saying no to sin and yes to Jesus and his ways. There's this uh, really cool story 
about Charles Spurgeon. I don't know if you've heard of Charles Spurgeon. He was known as the the Prince of Preachers back in the mid-1800s in in the UK. And uh, legend says that he attended a conference where a speaker was preaching on perfectionism in a a rather uh, um, outspoken manner. And uh, this article goes on to say that Spurgeon didn't challenge him on the spot, which is unusual because he himself was an outspoken person. Uh, instead, the next morning, uh, so I kind of get the picture that you know, maybe they're all staying in the same hotel, and so they all went down to the breakfast lobby together. So it says, instead, the next morning, he poured a pitcher of milk or a jug of milk over the man's head, to which the perfectionist responded with the kind of rage and hostility that you'd expect from any sinner. Perfectionism debunked, the article says. And I love that story. I'm like, yeah, you go, Spurgeon. There's no such thing as perfectionism in this age. It is such a deceptive doctrine, and it puts such a heavy burden on us. In fact, the Apostle John says in 1 John 1 verse 8, he says that if we say that we have no sin, he says we're deceived. And then he says, and the truth is not in us. But the opposite, the opposite of the false doctrine of perfectionism is the equally false and dangerous deception of, of spiritual complacency. Spiritual complacency. This article I was reading goes on to say, and we'll, in fact, we'll put it on screen because it was just so good. He says, it is easy for me to criticize sinless perfectionism because I don't personally know any Christians who struggle with this doctrine. And it's true, you don't really hear about this false doctrine that much anymore. He says, however, I dare say that I know an entire evangelical culture that is complacent about sin. I don't think it's an unfair statement. As we look particularly at the church in the the Western culture, I don't think it's an unfair statement. He goes on, he says, we've forgotten that sin is ugly and grotesque. The complete opposite to righteousness. The complete opposite to the righteousness that Jesus has given us. He says, we've forgotten that God's will for our lives is that we be holy. We've forgotten that what Christians look forward to above all else is Jesus returning to take away our sin completely. To rid us of the presence of sin. And I read that and I was like, whoa. Do I feel that? Do you feel that? Above all else, we just can't wait for Jesus to return so that we can be done with sin. He goes on and says, we've forgotten that anyone who truly desires that day to come will be obsessed with living a holy life now, referring to this process of sanctification. And I like to sum it up by saying, a holy discontent, having a holy discontent. It's the opposite of complacency. I am not satisfied with my spiritual journey. I'm not satisfied in my, in my, my growth in Christ's likeness and my war against my own sin. You see, also, a spiritual complacency looks at justification and says, well, well Jesus paid the penalty for your, your sins, and you have the righteousness of Jesus imputed to you, so, so why bother with this whole middle thing? fighting off sin thing. You kinda, you've got your ticket, you've been justified, you've got your ticket into heaven one day. So, so in the meantime, just, just live your life. Kick back. Paul is gonna show us now that the fruit of justification 
is a holy discontent about our spiritual condition. Look at verse 12. He says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So in contrast to, to spiritual perfectionism, in contrast to spiritual complacency, he says, I press on to make it. I press on to make spiritual perfectionism my own. I press on to make spiritual maturity my own. I press on to make Christ-likeness my own. Now, Paul must have been a sports fan because he often used sporting language to teach the truth. And that little phrase there, press on, refers to a sprinter. It means to sprint uh, swiftly towards the goal. Uh, which is interesting because the Christian life has often been uh, um, described as a marathon rather than a sprint. And I, and I think it's a pretty good analogy. But, but there are times when we will need to sprint. Um, I have been known to dabble in a bit of jogging around the island. Um, well, that sounds too impressive. I, I've been known to jog around our block every now and again. And I take a slow, steady, you know, slow, steady uh, pace as I go along uh, until I approach the most dangerous animal on this island. And that is a mother hen with her little chicks. Then my jog becomes a frantic sprint around this mother hen because those mamas can get seriously aggressive if you get too close to them. And that's what Paul says. In fact, he writes to Timothy, his young disciple, and he says, hey, Timothy, flee. Flee youthful lust and pursue righteousness. He's saying as you jogging along toward the goal of spiritual perfection, he says there will come times when you will need to sprint. You will need to sprint away from sin. You will need to sprint away from temptation. And by the way, our marathon is always in the opposite direction to the way the world is going, to the way our culture is going. So beware of false water breaks along the way. False water breaks that say, hey, come on, chill, man. You've been justified. You've got your ticket. In fact, just stop running. Come and join us. You know, come and join us. Come and celebrate with us. Come and celebrate this way. Come and celebrate that way. Think about it. If the Apostle Paul, 30 years after his conversion, and a man blessed with the responsibility of writing down God's inspired holy word says, hey, I haven't attained spiritual perfection yet. I'm not perfect like Jesus. I haven't arrived yet. I'm not satisfied with my spirituality. In fact, I hate my sin. Go and read about it in, in Romans chapter 7. So he says, so I'm going to press on with, with all of the means of grace that God has given me, the Holy Spirit and God's word. I'm going to press on to make holiness my own. So if the apostle Paul says that after 30 years of walking with the Lord, who are we to become, to become complacent? So how do we know if we have become spiritually complacent as opposed to having this holy discontent within us? One scholar said this, he said, it is a point at which you will find yourself insensitive to sin and defending yourself when you ought to be admitting your weakness and pursuing spiritual strength. I thought, wow, that's good. So let, let's turn that into two questions. Number one, what sin have we become desensitized to? 
Instead of fighting off our sin, we're fighting off the conviction of the Holy Spirit within us. And now we, we kind of no longer feel that conviction. We've kind of dulled it down. We've become desensitized to the shock and the ugliness and the grotesqueness of sin. Number two, what sin are we justifying? Maybe we say statements like this, well, well, it's not hurting anyone. In fact, no one knows about it. It's just me and my computer screen late at night. Or, well, it's consensual. I mean, if she's for it and I'm for it, then how can it be that bad? Well, this is the popular one today. I know the Bible says that about that, but look at the culture. Look at the times. Times have moved on. Times have rolled on. We cannot justify our actions by looking to culture, but rather to God's word to see where we need to repent and then press on towards spiritual maturity. But this then raises the question of motivation and ambition. To press on and pursue spiritual perfection in Jesus means we need to have a holy ambition. Point number two. So do we have a drive in us? And what is motivating that drive? Like I alluded to in the beginning, we don't often think of having a spiritual drive, do we? You know, we're so used to the world telling us, hey, you know, you've got to climb the corporate ladder. Hey, you've got to achieve this. You've got to achieve that. You've got to become this. You've got to become that. Remember, we identified those four underlying idols that drive us or, or give us ambition. We, we looked at the idol of comfort and affirmation and power and, and control, who are all telling us, hey, you've got to pursue this so that you can experience what we're promising you. But then we saw that they, they can never deliver on what they promise. Because only Jesus is the ultimate and true idol, and only he then can actually deliver on what he promises. And so therefore, he should be the source who motivates us and gives us a holy ambition. Look at verse 13. Paul goes on, he says, Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, he says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul's holy ambition is to receive this goal, this prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This refers to our glorification. This refers to the return of Christ. And when he returns, we will be fully sanctified, just like him, perfect, just like Jesus. Like I said earlier, our position of justification will match our condition of sanctification at the return of Christ, at glorification. How do I know this? Don't take my word for it. Let's, let's look at what the Bible says. Look at what the Apostle John says in 1 John 3 verse 2. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now. Right now in this glorious middle. We are God's children right now. If you are a born-again Christian, you are God's child right now. Because by faith in Jesus, you have been declared justified and adopted into his family. He goes on and says, and what we will be, so now it goes to future tense, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. We will be fully perfect, just like Jesus. That's the prize, that's the goal that Paul is referring to in Philippians 3. 
But then I couldn't resist verse 3. It says, and everyone who thus hopes in him, everyone who hopes in this process, in this marathon that we're, we're on, and, and hopes for that moment, what do we do in the meantime? He says, purifies himself as he is pure. Even the apostle John blows the false doctrine of perfectionism out of the water and spiritual complacency out of the water. There's nothing passive about this time that we're in until the return of Jesus. If our prize one day is to be like Jesus, then our ambition is to purify ourselves in the meantime. But the all-important question then is, well, well, how are we going to do this? Let's go back to verse 13 and let's look at Paul's strategy. He says, brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own. So he repeats himself to drive home this point. But here comes his strategy. He says, but one thing I do. That's just a glorious statement right there. One thing I do. Paul was a focused man. One thing I do, he says, and that results in a two-part strategy. He says, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. And he presses on towards this goal. What an amazing statement. I mean, think about it. Paul accomplished so much in his life. He planted numerous churches. He, he, he raised up so many disciples. He preached so many sermons. He wrote most of the New Testament. But all of that was simply fruit because of one main focus that he had. To become more and more like Jesus by doing two things. He says, forgetting his past and focusing on the way ahead. Forgetting what lies behind meant, in Paul's case, no longer relying on his self-righteous credentials for, uh, to attempt uh, some sort of spiritual perfection and justification before God. Remember in verse 5 and, and 6 of chapter 3, he went on and on about you know, being circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of, of Benjamin, being a Hebrew of Hebrews, and, and who was uh, passionate and zealous, this passionate and zealous Pharisee who was blameless when it came to uh, living out the law. And then he said, one day, one day, when he came to faith in Jesus, when he was justified, he said all of that was like rubbish. Those his words, like rubbish. All of those credentials that he was relying on are useless in spiritual maturity, in the process of becoming more and more like Jesus. Maybe there are some of us here who are like the Apostle Paul. We kind of think, you know, who we are and, and what we've done, uh, you know, is good enough to, to be right before God. You know, we, we, our, our, our achievements and our character, we think, justifies us before God. Because, you know, if I think I'm a good person, you think I'm a good person, you think I do good things, I think I do good things, well, then surely God must think I do good things, therefore I must be justified. And the gospel says we couldn't be further from the truth. Maybe for the rest of us, we're, we're on the opposite end of the scale. You know, our past sins are, are weighing us down with guilt and shame. And we can't run this race of, of holiness because that sin is weighing us down, that guilt and that shame is weighing us down. And that's where the gospel comes in again. It says, Jesus took all of that sin. Jesus took all of that guilt and shame upon himself so that he would set us free to then run, to be enabled to run this race. So the gospel sets us free from our past 
And secondly, it gives us the grace, it gives us the power to put off sin in the moment, in the now, to put off these distractions and pursue holiness until we reach that upward call of God in Christ Jesus, whenever that might be. But the question is, do we have this single focus? Do we have this holy ambition in everything that we do? Because this is a, a, another athletic analogy from Paul. The, the runner runs with this, this single focus towards the finish line, towards the goal, towards the prize. But as soon as a runner, I mean, maybe you've, you've, you've tried this out, as soon as a runner looks to the side, or as soon as a runner looks behind him to see where his competitors are, competitors are what happens? You run off course. You run out of your lane. You stumble, you, you twist your ankle, you sprain your ankle. So we have to ask ourselves, do we have a single holy ambition with our friendships to be like Jesus? Or are they causing us to turn to the side? Are they causing us to run out of our lane and stumble? Do we have a holy ambition at work to represent Jesus as best we can in our journey, in the place where we're at? Do we have a holy ambition in our marriages to be like Jesus? Do we have a single holy ambition in our social activities to represent Jesus, or are they causing us to stumble? Because this is the race that we're running, guys. This is the race that we're running towards our prize, towards Jesus himself. But holy discontent and holy ambition won't work without a holy attitude towards pursuing spiritual perfection. Last point. So just take a moment. What are your thoughts towards your spiritual growth? What is your outlook on your growth in Christ-likeness? Is it the all-consuming passion of your life? Like, yes, I just want to become more and more like Jesus. Or it's like, yeah, I think I'm doing okay or I haven't really given it much thought, or I only, I only think about it when I come to church, it's when I'm reminded of it. So let's assess our attitudes in light of what Paul says in verse 15. Look at this, he says, let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Now, if we understood the original Greek, it could sound like Paul was contradicting himself here because that word mature is the same word that he uses for perfect that, that he used in verse 12, where he said that I'm not perfect or mature and I'll only, I'll only achieve that spiritual perfection at the return of Jesus. What he's saying though is this, to have a holy discontent about your spiritual condition and to have a holy ambition of pursuing that, that prize of becoming more and more like Jesus he says, that's maturity. That's what it means to be mature. Are you pressing in on that? Are you running intentionally like a runner in a race towards that price? That's the right holy attitude you have. That's mature thinking. But what if you don't think that way? What if you think differently about your spiritual condition? Like, yeah, yeah, I'm perfect. Or like, yeah, it's neither here nor there. Paul says, God will reveal that to you. 
meaning God will convict us of our wrong thinking. He will convict us of our wrong attitudes. He will convict us of our wrong actions. In fact, that word means to expose. God's gonna expose that to you. And he'll do it through the unction of the Holy Spirit within you. He'll do it as you read his word, as you hear his word being preached. He'll do it through the fellowship of fellow Christians, brothers and sisters coming alongside you going, hey, I think you're kind of drifting. I think you're kind of drifting out of your lane. He'll do it through trials and circumstances. He'll do it through the consequences of our wrong thoughts and actions. That's why Paul says in verse 16, hey, rather hold to what is true meaning what we have attained. Hold on to what is true. Hold on to your justification by faith in Jesus. Hold on to your focus of running the race, of pursuing perfection. Hold on to, your, to the, the glorious prize one day of becoming perfect like Jesus. In other words, stay in your lane. Stay in your lane. Run with focus towards the prize ahead. Let me finish off by telling you the secret to staying in your lane of pursuing spiritual perfection. Look at verse 12. It says, not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. He says, I'm pressing on to stay in my lane, staying in my lane, and I'm running hard toward the goal. I'm running hard toward perfection. Look at this. Here's how and here's why. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Is that not the most beautiful statement that you ever read? Because Christ Jesus has made you his own. Personalize at sunrise. He's writing this to you. He's saying, I took the initiative. I saw you in your condition. I came down. I took on flesh. I lived the life that you were supposed to live but could never live because of your sin. I died the death that you deserve to die to make you my own, to justify you, to sanctify you, and ultimately glorify you. I did that for you. I blazed the way for you. So run, run sunrise. Run this race that has now been set out before you because I've made you my own. I've made it possible for you. Don't be content with where you are in your walk with me. Keep going. Keep fighting off sin toward that upward call of your heavenly Father. And here's the deal. As we pursue Jesus, as we pursue Christ's likeness, we become not only more and more like Jesus in this life, but we become more and more equipped in this imperfect world. We become equipped to represent Jesus in an imperfect career. We become equipped to be a good steward of our bodies, bringing Him glory with our bodies as opposed to giving into our sinful nature and inclinations. Equipped to become a more Christ-like spouse or, or parent or friend or colleague. Equipped to bring a taste of the true perfection to this imperfect world so that they might see that, taste that, and repent and believe and be justified, begin their journey of sanctification and ultimately be glorified.
So run, sunrise. Jesus has blazed the way for you. In fact, he, he's, he's blazed the lane for you. Here's our lane. Here's, here's our, our, the direction that we are to go in. We fight. We've been justified. He's justified you. Now he's sanctifying you. And ultimately one day, he'll glorify us. Where are you? Where are you in this race? Maybe for some of us, we're still over here. And today's an amazing opportunity to repent and believe in Jesus and be justified, be adopted into his family for all eternity. And then begins your glorious partnership with the Holy Spirit in becoming more and more like him, having this deep-rooted sense of joy in you because one day this is going to happen. And this is beyond our wildest imagination. Free from the presence of sin, free from all of our insecurities, free from anxiety and stress from this imperfect world, right into the arms of our Lord and Savior Jesus. So run. So what we're gonna do now is we're gonna pray. We're gonna pray a prayer of repentance. We're gonna ask the Holy Spirit to convict us of maybe our spiritual complacency, convict us of things in our lives that are, are hindering us in this walk, in this marathon, to give us the energy to sprint where we need to sprint and to stay focused on our goal.